Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution and a chapter on the Civil War and events happening on the fringe of the Civil War. So let's hop right in. Violence and Terror. On the 7th of December 1917, the Council of People's Commissars set up an emergency commission to, quote, liquidate all attempts and acts of counter-revolution and sabotage, end quote, footnote 57. This commission, known as the Cheka, quickly became a key organ of government, far more powerful than the underfunded and poorly organized police force known as the civil militia. Though its overwhelming priority was to crush counter-revolution, the Cheka was involved in everything from combating speculative trade to caring for orphans. By 1921, 60,000 personnel worked for the organization. The threat of counter-revolutionary conspiracy was real. The right center, formed in spring 1918, brought together monarchists and right cadets who plotted to restore the monarchy. Its pro-German orientation, however, caused the majority to leave to form the National Center, which looked to a military dictatorship to save Russia. Left cadets, unhappy at their party's reactionary orientation, turned to the SRs and formed the Union for the Regeneration of Russia. In March 1918, the former SR terrorist Boris Savinkov created the Union of Defense of the Motherland and Freedom, based on guards' officers, which launched uprisings in Yaroslavl, Rybinsk, and Moron. From 1920, its successor, based in Warsaw, received funding from the Polish and French governments. Many of these counter-revolutionary groups had only a tenuous existence, and many of their conspiracies were risible affairs, abysmally led and poorly funded. Nevertheless, the fact that they existed was a source of acute anxiety to a regime that was very far from being secure. The Cheka's mission to hunt down counter-revolution placed it outside the crumbling framework of law, although it was never completely unaccountable for its actions. According to its own statistics, in 1918-1919, to the Cheka arrested 128,010 people in the Russian Soviet Federalist Socialist Republic, RSFSR, of whom 42.4% were released, 28.5% were imprisoned, 10.9% sent to concentration camps, 7.5% shot, and 7.5% taken hostage, and 3.2% sent to do hard labor. Of the 9,641 shot, a considerable underestimate of the true figure, 7,068 were found guilty of counter-revolution, 632 of abusing their positions of authority, 217 of speculation, and 1,204 of criminal activity. Footnote 58. Throughout the Civil War, leading Bolsheviks regularly expressed concern that the Cheka was out of control. Executive committees of provincial and city Soviets were loud in their denunciations of an overweening body that showed them contempt. From Puskov, quote, They bring nothing but harm to the revolution. They have the character of institutions behind walls that violate all human norms, and even have a despotic monarchist character. End quote. Footnote 59. 
1919, it was deprived of the power to carry out death sentences in areas not under military jurisdiction, but within four months, that power had been reinstated. Every bid to curb the Cheka failed, not least because of Lenin's refusal to accept that institutional checks and balances were a necessary means to inhibit lawlessness and corruption within the emerging state. Nauseated by the hypocrisy of bourgeois governments that talked about morality yet sent millions to their deaths, and inspired by the example of the French Revolution, the Bolsheviks insisted that terror was a legitimate means to defend the dictatorship of the proletariat. Initially, the hope was that terror would be used only as a last resort, yet as early as January 1918, Lenin warned ominously that, quote, until we use terror against speculators, shooting them on the spot, nothing will happen. End quote. Prompting the left SR, I.N. Steinberg, to ask, if that were the case, why he was needed as Commissar of Justice. A civil war escalated, inhibitions about the unrestrained use of violence lessened on all sides. During the first Cuban campaign, Kornilov told the volunteer army, Take no prisoners, the greater the terror, the greater will be our victory. But it was only with the near-fatal attack on Lenin on the 30th of August in 1918 that the Bolsheviks elevated terror to official policy. In Petrograd, the leading Bolshevik newspaper shrieked, quote, For the blood of Lenin, let there be floods of blood of the bourgeoisie, more blood, as much as possible. End quote. 500 hostages were shot at once, in alphabetical order, on the orders of Zinoviev. One scholar estimates that between October 1917 and February 1922, 280,000 were killed either by the Cheka or the internal security troops, about half of them in the course of operations to suppress peasant uprisings. Footnote 60. This would suggest that perhaps 140,000 were executed directly by the Cheka, a blood-curdling number, to be sure, but it should be compared with the 50,000 to 200,000 Jews killed at this same time in pogroms in Ukraine and Belarusia, and the 200,000 who were forced to flee to Poland. Even allowing for the savagery that is intrinsic to all civil wars, the brutality of the Cheka vitiated the Bolshevik claim to stand for a higher ethical principle than their opponents. Those accused of counter-revolutionary crimes were supposed to be subject to a trial, but some local organs did not scruple to execute opponents on the spot. The assumption that any means was justified in the fight to the death with the whites became quickly entrenched. Footnote 61 G. A. Atarbakov, an Armenian old Bolshevik who had legal training at Moscow University, provides an extreme example of how fear of counter-revolution fostered moral degeneration. At the beginning of 1919, as the 11th Red Army and the Caspian Caucasian Front disintegrated, he was promoted by Sergei Kirov to head the Cheka in Astrakhan, a fishing port of vital strategic importance in preventing any link-up between the forces of Kolchak and Denikin. The supply situation was utterly desperate, made worse by the arrival of the demoralized Red Army soldiers. And on the 6th of March, the Military Revolutionary Committee set up to rule the town cut the bread ration to 400 grams. 
This provoked a strike, which caused Atarbakov to place the port under siege on the 10th of March. All strikers who refused to return to work had their ration books cancelled. According to the official version of events, a striker fired on a cordon of sailors, causing them to open fire on demonstrators, killing as many as 200. This triggered an armed rebellion by workers, led by a Cossack officer. In the face of this white threat, Red Army soldiers launched an artillery bombardment of three working-class districts, killing perhaps as many as 1,000. 184 strikers' leaders were subsequently shot. Footnote 62. Over the next couple of months, Atarbakov seems to have succumbed to paranoia about a white guard plot, and presided over the shooting or drowning of up to 4,000 people, including fishermen who were accused of plotting the destruction of the Volga-Caspian flotilla at Alexandrovsk. K. Yagrasis, a political commissar in the Cheka, recorded, quote, the discontent with the current power that exists among the local population, especially Kalmyks and Kyrgyz, as a result of the unheard of violence and contempt of the commissars. End quote. On the 4th of September, Atarbakov was summoned to Moscow, but after a long investigation, his supporters, who included Kirov, Kamo, Simon Terpetrosian, and Stalin, ensured not only that he went unpunished, but that he was promoted. Footnote 63. Because it was never official policy, white terror has received less attention than its red counterpart. Yet violence unconstrained by law was practiced on all sides, including the SR-dominated governments of summer 1918. Whereas in theory red terror was bureaucratic, carried out by professionals usually after the formalities of a trial, much white terror was the consequence of officers allowing their men to go on the rampage. Among the most wanton perpetrators were the Ottomans of the Far East, the Bloody Baron, von Ungern Sternberg, who unleashed a reign of terror across the Amur and Asuri regions, and Grigory Semenov, who boasted of personally supervising the torture of 6,500 people. The logic of terror ratcheted ever upwards, both symptom and cause of a general brutalization that affected all sides. On the 29th of April, 1920, General Wrangel ordered, quote, the merciless shooting of all commissars and communists taken prisoner, end quote, prompting Trotsky to issue his own order for the, quote, extermination one by one of all members of Wrangel's command staff, caught bearing arms, end quote. When Wrangel's forces were swept out of the Crimea in autumn, the Military Revolutionary Council of the Fourth Army initially promised an amnesty to those who had served in the White Army and who registered with the authorities. This relatively humane policy was cancelled when Rosalia Zemlyachka, Belakun, and others arrived from Moscow in mid-November, bent on purifying the peninsula of all class aliens. Sultan Galiev, one of a commission sent from Moscow to investigate the bloodbath that ensued, reported that 20,000 to 25,000 white officers were shot, but added that locals, soon full of hate for their new rulers, put the true figure at near 70,000, three quarters of these being working people. Footnote 64. 
Wrangell's officers had never been squeamish in carrying out reprisals against the Reds. General Ya A. Slashev, for instance, was a notorious butcher. But such slaughter was unparalleled in its magnitude and, moreover, took place after the fighting was over. Not all Red terror emanated from the Bolsheviks. Colonel M. A. Muravev, formerly an officer on the southwestern front, came over to the left SRs following the Kornilov Rebellion. He led the defense of Petrograd against the forces of Kerensky and Krasnov in October. Although he may not be considered typical of officers fighting for the Reds, he was soon implicated in the left SR rebellion in July 1918. See the next section of this episode, the suppression of the socialist opposition. Muravev wreaked terror when taking Kiev for the Red forces in January 1918. The Red Cross estimated that up to 5,000 were killed, including 3,000 officers. Some 15,000 shells destroyed key buildings, and a contribution of 5 million rubles was exacted from the bourgeoisie of the Ukrainian capital. A detester of Ukrainian nationalism, Muravev oversaw the liquidation not only of counter-revolutionaries, but of Austrian spies and Mazapan traders. Ivan Mazapa, Ottoman of Ukraine, had risen up against Peter the Great in alliance with Charles XII of Sweden in 1708. Following his arrest in April 1918, he wrote, We established Soviet power with fire and sword. I took the city, Kiev, and wreaked havoc on the palaces and churches, showing mercy to no one. On the 28th of January, the Duma asked for a truce. In response, I ordered them to be choked with gas. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of generals were killed without mercy. Thus did we take our revenge. We could have stopped the fury of revenge, but we didn't, because our slogan was Be Merciless. End quote. Footnote 65. Muravev's hyperbole unwittingly echoed the words of former Tsarist chief of staff, Ayanushkovich, who, when asked by the Minister of Agriculture about the devastation wrought in Galicia in 1915, replied, quote, War proceeds by fire and sword, and whoever happens to get in the way must suffer. End quote. Like Muravev, a large proportion of combatants in the Civil War had been conscripts in the Tsarist army. It is thus tempting to argue that the First World War produced brutalization, which in turn produced unparalleled levels of political violence once the Tsarist regime broke down. A note of caution, however, is called for. Certainly, the violence of the First World War had inured men to sickening levels of brutality, but what was crucial was the ability of the state to preserve its domestic monopoly of violence. Most First World War combatants, once removed from combat, settled back into civilian life without too much strain, and in some countries, such as Britain, with the notable exception of Ireland, the level of violence decreased after 1918. Civil war violence grew out of the violence of the First World War, but it had features that are better explained in terms of a situation of revolution and counter-revolution, and of the collapse of social order. Footnote 66. In addition, some of the violence was of a type that had antecedents that went back long before 1914. The pogroms in 1919, for example, were the third such wave of anti-Jewish violence, 
since 1881-84 and 1905-06. Although on an altogether unprecedented scale, and now galvanized by revolutionary and counter-revolutionary fear and revenge. More generally, much popular violence had little connection either with the First World War or with the revolution, but derived from the disintegration of settled patterns of quotidien authority, from a situation that allowed pre-existing social tensions, community rivalries, and the desperate struggle for scarce resources to find violent expression. Footnote 67. Some historians stress the modernity of violence in the Civil War. They see the First World War as a watershed that led to a massive expansion and militarization of practices designed to shape the social body. Practices such as categorization, information gathering, policing, incarceration, and deportation, which had their origins in the 19th century. Footnote 68. In such episodes as de-Cossackization in March 1919, civil war violence appears to arise not so much from the drive to crush political enemies as from an aspiration to create a society purged of contaminating elements. Footnote 69. The telltale word used in connection with de-Cossackization was istrebleni, annihilation or extermination which seems horribly to anticipate events of two decades later. The word crops up in other contexts too. When Komach forces seized Kazan on the 7th of August 1918 and executed scores of Soviet sympathizers, Lenin wrote to Trotsky, quote, In my opinion, it is wrong to spare the city and delay things further, because merciless annihilation is essential once Kazan is in an iron ring. End quote, footnote 70. Mercifully, this did not actually happen. How far such words were literal in intent is unclear, but even if figurative, they adumbrate the grisly practices of later totalitarian regimes. Nevertheless, violence designed to eliminate entire groups perceived to be socially harmful, through mass deportation for example, was not a common phenomenon though bourgeois elements, or aristocrats, were subject to discrimination, internment, and occasionally execution. So far as forms of warfare were concerned, the civil was far less modern than the First World War. To be sure, armoured trains bearing 2 to 4, 3 to 6 inch artillery pieces, plus 4 to 16 machine guns, were deployed. The Reds initially had an advantage in the area, although by mid-1919, the Whites had bridged the gap, thanks to the Allies. The Allies also supplied the armed forces of southern Russia with tanks, a weapon that the Reds lacked. But tank warfare remained limited. Both sides did engage in aerial bombardment, for example, during the Battle for Kazan in August and September 1918. But generally, aerial warfare was limited, and neither side used poison gas. Footnote 71. Use of such weaponry indicates some continuity of military practice with the First World War, but most of the fighting was different in character. A war of maneuver, entailing much advance and retreat along railways and reliance on the mobility provided by cavalry. And despite the high-tech nature of some of the weaponry used, the Civil War more commonly relied on close combat, 
using the rifle or saber. The suppression of the socialist opposition. During the Civil War, the socialist and anarchist parties proved unable to mount a concerted challenge to the Bolsheviks. Footnote 72. This is often ascribed solely to Bolshevik repression, but though this was the prime factor, it too easily exonerates the opposition for its failures. The SRs were by far the biggest threat to the Bolsheviks, and after the dissolution of the Constituent Assembly, the center of the party was increasingly outstripped by its right wing, which advocated armed resistance to the new regime. Following the revolt of the Czech Legion, the SRs as a whole swung behind that policy. Kolchak's overthrow of the Omsk Directory, however, caused the majority to distance itself from armed rebellion. Footnote 73. Indeed, in the wake of the revolution in Germany, the SR Central Committee came to the view that a transition to socialism based on cooperatives and collective forms of ownership was on the cards. In late November 1918, hard on the red defeat at Perm, the Bolsheviks began to make overtures to the SRs. In late February 1919, after the party proclaimed itself a third force and renounced armed struggle against the Bolshevik dictatorship, the party was legalized. Because the party's newspaper continued to denounce the regime, however, relations remained extremely strained. Each rapprochement proved short-lived. In May 1919, the SR Central Committee agreed to prioritize the battle against the Whites and to postpone armed struggle against the Bolsheviks. However, its hold over its provincial organizations was weak. In Kiev, the local party actively supported Denikin and was expelled, whilst in Siberia, SRs collaborated with Bolsheviks and were censured by the center. By this stage, most SRs accepted that the priority was the contest against the Whites, but they were unable to agree as to whether this required the suspension of struggle against the Bolsheviks. The attempt to act as a third force ended in failure, and by 1920, the majority of the SR Central Committee were in jail. For several months after October, the Mensheviks were convinced that the Bolsheviks could not retain power. Their disastrous showing in the Constituent Assembly election and their rapidly falling membership, from around 150,000 in December to less than 40,000 by late 1918, to some degree lessened divisions within the party. Footnote 74. The center, led by Dan, and the left, led by Martov, rejected armed struggle and sought to create a strong working class movement that could press for civil liberties and democratic government. In summer 1918, however, a handful of Mensheviks entered the anti-Bolshevik governments in Samara, Omsk, Ekaterinburg, and Baku, including Ivan Maisky, who would later be Soviet ambassador to the United Kingdom. Following Kolchak's coup, the Mensheviks rallied in support of the Red Army, which they now saw as the defender of the revolution, and railed against the Allies for their failure to leave Russia. For the first three months of 1919, the party operated largely legally, 
but Menshevik determination to support strikers and to revitalize the Soviets and the trade unions brought them into regular collision with the Cheka. By autumn 1921, the national membership of the Mensheviks was about 4,000, but in a few places, such as Tula, they remained dominant in the city Soviet, despite every Bolshevik ploy. Footnote 75. And Menshevik groups continued to be uncovered through the 1920s. Incensed by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the left SRs withdrew from the Council of People's Commissars, which thus reverted to being a one-party body. But local cooperation with Bolsheviks, for example, in the National Council of Commissars of the Northern Oblast, continued for a couple more months. The announcement of a food dictatorship in May alienated the party still further. On the 4th of July, the left SR Central Committee authorized the assassination of the German ambassador in the hope that this would reignite the war with Germany. Two days later, Ayakov Blumken, a high-ranking Cheka operative, slew Wilhelm von Merbach, and this was followed on the 30th of July by the assassination of Field Marshal von Eichhorn in Kiev. When the Bolsheviks arrested the left SR faction at the concurrent 5th Congress of Soviets, its members retaliated by occupying the Cheka headquarters in Moscow and arresting Dzerzhinsky. This chaotic uprising was designed more to force the Bolsheviks to break with opportunism than to overthrow the regime, but it proved to be a self-destructive move. In June 1918, the left SRs had nearly 100,000 members and, given their support in the countryside, had the potential to force a change of government policy. Yet they managed to squander this advantage. Over the three months following the uprising, membership collapsed by two-thirds. By October, when the party's fourth congress took place, a bewildering number of splits had appeared in its ranks. The Congress condemned the Bolsheviks for, quote, supplanting the dictatorship of toilers with a dictatorship of the Bolshevik party, end quote, and for creating corporate socialism. Curiously, however, it did not seek to capitalize on the widespread peasant hostility to the food dictatorship, and a majority of the Congress even approved the Bolshevik decision to set up committees of poor peasants in order to promote class struggle in the village a policy that was already proving counterproductive. The Congress rejected a policy of carrying out terrorist actions on Soviet soil, but in Ukraine, Blumkin was tasked with organizing partisan activity behind Petliura's lines, which was obviously of assistance to the Red Army. The redoubtable Spiridonova was unhappy at what she saw as the prioritization of the struggle against the Whites, but by April to May 1920, the majority of the left SR Central Committee had come to reject armed struggle against the Bolsheviks. This did not prevent the latter from arresting the so-called activists in Ukraine once they retook control of the territory, and from banning a left SR Congress. This triggered a final suicidal burst of activity on the part of a minority of partisans, who, inter alia, tried three times to assassinate Blumkin, who was now collaborating with the Bolsheviks. 
Yet the former Commissar of Justice, Steinberg, led the majority of the party towards a rapprochement with the regime, and in October 1920, the party was briefly legalized. The Bolsheviks viewed the socialist opposition parties with contempt, as opportunists at best and counter-revolutionary accomplices at worst. From the first, Lenin was prepared to establish a one-party dictatorship if that was the only way to preserve Soviet power. But others in the leadership, such as Kamenev, recognized that Soviets were quintessentially multi-party bodies, and took the commitment to Soviet power much more seriously. However, as working-class opposition increased in spring 1918, and above all, following the outbreak of full-scale civil war in May, even verbal criticism of the regime came to be seen as intolerable by many Bolsheviks. Seeing themselves as caught up in a life-and-death struggle to preserve the workers' state, any opposition appeared treacherous. At critical junctures, it is true, Bolshevik leaders did make tactical compromises, but never of a substantial or lasting kind. It is not hard to see why they should have distrusted those who claimed to prioritize the struggle against the whites, yet reserved the right to take up arms against the regime, or those who professed to support the regime, yet subjected it to withering attack. As civil war intensified, what began mainly as pragmatic restriction on the opposition parties hardened into a principled rejection of the right of petty bourgeois parties to exist at all. One was either for or against the Bolshevik order. The result of the Bolshevik repression of the opposition can be seen in the dramatic fall in representation of the opposition parties in the Soviets from 14.2% in 1918 to 0.2% in 1920, to their total disappearance by 1922. Footnote 76. The Soviet experience has been confirmed by civil wars elsewhere, suggesting that the chances for third parties, whether the anarchists or POUM in the Spanish Civil War, or the Democratic League in China in the late 1940s, are slender to non-existent. A partial exception to this were the anarchists, who fought bravely on the Red Side during the Civil War, while being swinging in their criticism of the commissarocracy. The influence of anarchists grew after October, but perhaps not surprisingly, they failed to develop sustained and effective organizations. Many criminal gangs filched the anarchist label in the winter of 1917 to 1918, and many anarchists were happy to operate in a semi-criminal milieu as they appropriated private property at will. In April 1918, the Cheka forcibly disbanded black guards in Petrograd, Moscow, Ekaterinoslav and Vologda, who had taken over valuable residences. And in Moscow, the clash was bloody and led to the death of 40 anarchists and about a dozen Czechists. More serious were the established anarchist groups, divided into two main ideological tendencies, 
A.A. Carolyn convened the first Congress of Anarcho-Communists in autumn 1918, and out of this emerged a federation of anarchist youth that spreaded branches in 23 towns. Generally better organized were the anarcho-syndicalists, who had enjoyed some influence in the labor movement in 1917. During the Civil War, the Voice of Labor group, headed by G.P. Maximov, fought to defend factory committees and free trade unions, and held a series of conferences. However, the Free Voice of Labor in Moscow was shut down because of its acerbic criticism of the Bolsheviks. Only in October 1920 was the All-Russian Federation of Anarcho-Syndicalists formally established. The heartland of anarchist activity was Ukraine, where Makhno's revolutionary insurgent army of Ukraine, with its base in the fertile province of Ekaterinoslav, played a key role in fighting the Whites and Petlyura. His army fought for free Soviets, elected by all the toiling population and committed to carrying out a far-reaching social revolution. At different times, his army fought for the Bolsheviks, thanks mainly to Red Commander V.A. Antonov of Sinko, who, unlike Trotsky, considered them genuine fighters of the revolution. At other times, against. In Ukraine, other influential anarchist groups included the Toxin, Nabat, group in Kursk, led by V.M. Volin and P.A. Arshinov, which linked up with Makhno in a bid to create a united confederation of Ukrainian anarchist organizations. In Siberia and the Far East, anarchists also formed the backbone of many red partisan units. The key responsibility for the creation of a one-party dictatorship lay with the Bolsheviks, yet the opposition parties bear a measure of responsibility for their own fate. After October, they confronted a scenario for which their ideologies left them ill-prepared, and they had difficulty orienting themselves to a situation where the ruling power claimed to be socialist. With the partial exception of the Mensheviks, the opposition proved unable to handle internal dissent or forge a unified policy, and the Cheka learned to exploit such divisions to its advantage. The left parties were also hampered by lack of finance. At the same time, in contrast to the Bolsheviks, they revealed how encumbered they were by the intelligentsia psychology characteristic of the pre-revolutionary movement, with its predilection for talk over action. The result was that although popular, disaffection was rife. Only the left SRs and Mensheviks managed to secure a foothold in leading strikes and peasant insurrections, and the latter only in winter 1920 to 1921. And that's going to do it for this week. Next time we'll be finishing off this chapter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.